Um, the reading is from Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to um, chapter 4, verse 13, but excluding the um, geniality. Um, I didn't decide that. <laughs> um, um, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his temptations, all this tempting, he led him until an op- left him until an opportune time. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name's Rod. If you're visiting or new, I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. And as you've heard from Sarah, we're we're moving through this series in Luke 1 to 5 uh, over this first term, and we've reached this passage tonight. And I really do trust um, Peter to read the um, genealogy. I just thought it would be easier to get to the key parts, but we will dig into the genealogy as we work through this passage um, tonight. Uh, let me pray for us as we um, come to God's Word and really ask that he'll help us um, not only to understand it, but apply it in our lives as we think hard about it together. So let's do that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, that he came on a unique mission and that as we consider uh, the way he was qualified uh, to fulfill that mission tonight, that you might uh, help us uh, more clearly to see um, your great work in sending him and be challenged by our response and comforted too uh, by Uh, the wonderful provision we have in our Saviour. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, I don't know if if you saw the movie The King's Speech in 2011, as I did, uh, but it starred Colin Firth as Albert, uh, the son of King George V, who was then uh, the ruler of Britain. Um, Albert would later uh, become the ruler himself, but 
He had a great weakness in communicating. Uh, growing up, he had a severe stammer. And to try and fix that, uh, he saw an Australian speech therapist, um, part of the true background to his story, named Lionel Logue. And of course, uh, that character is played by Geoffrey Rush in the movie. But with his father, uh, George V's death in 1936, his older brother, the firstborn, Edward VIII, ascends to the throne. And um, Albert doesn't think he's ever going to need to worry about being the king because he's the second son. Uh, but soon afterwards, a constitutional crisis is created by Edward. He's determined to marry uh, this American socialite, uh, Wallace Simpson, who had been divorced and was finalising a divorce in a second marriage. And under the rules of the Church of England and the king being seen as the, um, the head of that, uh, at least the patriarch of the church, um, he wasn't able to enter into such a marriage being the king. And so in a shock decision, he decides to abdicate the throne. He'll give up being the king so that he can marry Wallace. Well, suddenly, uh, Albert, the second son, is thrust into the spotlight. Uh, he feels completely inadequate for this role that people are saying he should consider being the king now. He didn't tick any of the boxes. You see, he didn't have the confidence and the charm of his older brother. He certainly couldn't speak eloquently like his brother could. He still had a severe stammer after all the work that he'd been doing with Lionel Logue. Um, you know, as a king, he was going to have to give many speeches. There was no avoiding that. And indeed, World War II was looming up and radio had just become a really big medium and the broadcast from the monarch to encourage and comfort the people of Britain were going to be crucial. But he just didn't have the right profile and he would never have had to worry about taking on such a responsibility if it weren't for this shock decision of his brother. But despite not being considered king material at any point, he was thrust into the role. You see, tonight as we come to the end of Luke 3 and into the start of chapter 4, we see the commissioning of another king as Jesus is about to commence his public ministry. And the passage answers a question for us about whether Jesus himself ticks all the boxes. And so the big question that I want us to consider tonight is this. Why is Jesus qualified to be our king? Why is Jesus qualified to be our king? And that brings me to the first point. Um, if you want to write notes, there's some space on the back of the bulletin. The first point is because the father affirms his sonship. So notice again, uh, Luke 3, uh, verses 21 and 22. We read, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, uh, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit uh, descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, in the storyline that's unfolding in Luke's gospel, there's really a passing of the baton at this moment. Uh, the focus has been on John's ministry in the last chapter or so as uh, hundreds and thousands of people are flocking out to the Jordan River to him. But at this point, as Jesus is baptized by John, uh, really Jesus will become center stage in the storyline and, and John's uh, sort of moves into the background of Luke's story. But of course, the people that are flocking out to John are largely coming from Jerusalem, the capital city of the nation, which is in the south, and from Judah, the tribe that surrounded that, the Judean countryside in the south. But 
Jesus is from the north, from Nazareth in Galilee. And so he comes down from the northern area, we understand, and joins the crowds that are flowing out to Jesus at the river. Now, he probably wouldn't have been that noticeable amongst all the others going out. But as soon as he's baptized, then all attention is placed on Jesus because his baptism is unique. It singles him out. In fact, in Matthew's uh, account of this, uh, John the Baptist even tries to stop Jesus from being baptized by him. He says, I should be baptized by you. Jesus insists that it's right, and in Matthew's gospel says, well, it's proper to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus is identifying himself with John's ministry, showing that what John had been saying was correct, that this ministry of calling people to repentance in preparation for the Christ who was to come was right, and Jesus stood with that. But it's certainly true that Jesus had no sin to repent of, and and John the Baptist is uh, offering a baptism for repentance. So what's going on here? Why is Jesus doing this? Well, it seems to be that the motivation is that he wants to identify with those he is coming to save. Just as when a disciple of Jesus is baptized, he's identifying with his saviour. Though he's God's son, he will stand in the Jordan River with sinners who in the future he will lay down his life for, he'll be crucified for. But notice again the striking wording here in verse 22. As the father speaks and says, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And so here, you know, the father dramatically commissions his son publicly With the descending of the Spirit on him, Jesus is identified, he's empowered for a unique mission. And not only are the heavens torn open, but you have this voice from heaven speak, and it makes clear the unique relationship between the Father and the Son. Of course, as we've read uh, Luke up to this point, we've seen in the early chapters already, Jesus is quite aware of his identity. He knows his unique relationship with the Father that he is the son. We've seen that even from an early age in Luke 2. And this reference to him here, the term son, uh, clearly refers to him being the son of God, but actually takes up promises of the messianic son, the son who would be the Messiah from Psalm chapter 2. You see, in that important psalm, it talks about a son who will come, who will rule, who will be the king, the Christ. And so when the father uses that title here, he's marking out Jesus as that sovereign king who was to come. Now, returning to the story of George VI for a moment, he actually had a very difficult relationship with his father. He was often berated by him. He faced physical and verbal abuse from him, as did his older brother. His father apparently had terrifying outbursts of anger, and George VI suffered various painful and emotionally scarring incidents as a boy, which probably explains a lot uh, in terms of his humiliating stammer. And you would think as a monarch um, that he would receive, uh, a future monarch potentially, would receive a good education, certainly a little bit better than the average uh, Briton at the time, but he received a fairly poor education compared to his older brother because, well, he wasn't going to be king. The older brother was. And he was sent off as a naval cadet at the age of 14. He was an extremely shy boy. He felt completely unprepared for this adult world that he was thrust into by his father. 
And when he was at home or returned home, his father would often force him to read his speeches, the king's speeches, and get angry with him because he was stuttering and belittle him because of his poor efforts. In short, what you would have to say is that his father did little to affirm him and there was no suggestion that he would ever be king. Now look at the contrast here as we see Jesus affirmed by his father. You know, we're to understand that Jesus is the true son who will live perfectly under God's rule. Only with Jesus is the father well pleased because, well, he fulfills the father's will at all times. Now, Jesus himself would say in John's gospel elsewhere, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And see, here's one reason why Jesus is qualified to be your king, because he was affirmed by his father in heaven as that one who was to come, the Christ. And that brings us to a second point, point two for your outline Jesus is qualified to be your king, not only because he's affirmed by the Father, but because he's from the right bloodline. He's right from the family, the right family line. Notice what's recorded in verse 23 and 33 and 34 and 38. I'll just pick out a few key parts of the genealogy here. Verse 23, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Verse 33, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. See, this is so unlike Matthew's gospel. Uh, In Matthew, you get it right up front. Chapter 1, here is the family tree of Jesus. From the very beginning, lay out the roots of the family in the first chapter. But Luke is leaving it to here. He suddenly inserts it between Jesus' baptism and his temptations. Why does he do that? Well, it's because he's showing that it's part of the qualifications for this one to be the Christ, to be the king. He has to come from the right line. And here that line is verified. Not only is there the father's affirmation, but he's also in the line of Abraham and David. Notice in um, verse 23 that the genealogy commences by saying that Jesus was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Pointing out that, you know, the the father of Jesus, um, Joseph is really only the father of Jesus in the sense that he's in that family line. But we've already been told earlier in Luke chapter 1 that he has been conceived, Jesus, by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so... Luke is alluding back to that point again. I think it's really interesting that he begins his genealogy by saying, son of Joseph, so it's thought, finishes with son of God. We've got something unique going on here, reinforcing this point to the reader. And while Matthew's genealogy just focuses on two key figures, it's all about being the son of Abraham and the son of David, there's no such singling out of ancestors here in Luke's account. He certainly mentions he's a son of David. He's in the list there, pointing to his royal descent. But actually, the line of royal descent starts with Jacob, because it's Jacob who draws together his 12 sons in Genesis 49, and he prophesies about their future. He announces which of the sons will be what in the future, and that it will be Judah who will be the line of the kings. 
And so in verse 10 of Genesis 49, we read this. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis 49.10. And of course, Judah is in the list, verse 33. Certainly he's the son of Abraham also, verse 34, the one to whom the promises were first given to God's chosen people, Israel. I don't know, what do you think about genealogies or family trees? Um, Often people are quite interested in them these days, I guess in the last two or three decades in Australia and many other countries. Um, People are wanting to research their family tree, understand their roots more fully. But of course, as you search and do such things, um, you might uh, uncover family scandals or past skeletons in the closet. Uh, My family have now um, traced back our genealogies on both sides of my parents. On my mother's side, uh, we have Italian heritage. My uh, mother's maiden name is Arigi, uh, which you should pronounce Arigi and roll your R's, Italian style. But it was four generations back that the first Arigi came to Australia, and he actually married twice and so ended up fathering 13 children. So there were a lot of Arigis uh, in that generation. On my father's side, there's a quite an interesting character, um, Joseph William Bailey. He's my great-great-grandfather, born in 1860, married in 1882 at St. Barnabas Broadway. You may know that church in Sydney. Um, he died under odd circumstances, though. He died in 1926, uh, shortly after retiring. He'd been a plasterer uh, most of his working life and apparently was on some site again with some young punks that were trying to show him up and he wanted to prove that he could still carry the big heavy plaster bags and so he did and presumably dropped dead from a heart attack after showing off that he was still strong. I don't know what that says about our family. Uh, Maybe we've got to be careful of pride. Um, I've never had a problem about trying to show off physically. But anyway, um, (laughs) unlike Matthew's genealogy... um, There are no past skeletons in Luke's one here. He doesn't mention difficult uh, people within the line. You see, in Matthew's account, he has Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And no, I'm not saying they're difficult because they're women. It's because all of them are Gentiles. All of them are non-Jews. And you didn't usually list females in a Jewish genealogy at this point in time. Those sort of details were embarrassing when you read Matthew's account um, because three of those four women had very morally dubious backgrounds and the fourth one, Ruth, was a Moabite. It was somebody that Israelites were not allowed to interact with to the 10th generation. But they're all hidden in Luke's family tree. He just focuses on the male line. But he does something interesting that Matthew doesn't do. You see, Matthew is writing largely to Jews And so he quotes lots of Old Testament passages and he takes the genealogy just back to Abraham. Why else would you go further? He's the head of the nation of Israel. But remember who Luke is writing to. Theophilus, a Gentile, a Greek speaker. And so he goes beyond Abraham. In fact, he takes it all the way back to Adam. And I think what Luke is trying to do for us here is to show us that this good news, this Christ is for all people. This is a universal message. It takes you back to the very first human. Christ's story is for all humanity because Gentiles will be grafted into God's promises to the Jewish people. 
And I think we're to understand too uh, that Jesus is also the new Adam. He's the second Adam, if you like, the man who will live perfectly under God's rule, who won't fail in the way that Adam did in the garden, who will live a righteous life that we cannot. And that's why Luke finishes his family tree by noting son of Adam, but son of God. See, as the Apostle Paul would later write in Romans 5, it's through this one that the obedience of this one that the many will be made righteous. Christ is the second Adam. And what Luke is trying to say through all of this in this genealogy is that Jesus is qualified. His family line has been verified, if you like. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and therefore he will fulfill all the expectations that hold on on that person, this one that would come. And that brings me to a final point. Point three. Why is Jesus qualified to be our king? Well, firstly, because of the Father's affirmation. He is the Son who will rule. Secondly, because he has the right bloodline. But thirdly, because he was tempted as we are and yet didn't sin. It's a key point for us as we reflect on this. So notice again, chapter 4, how it begins, verses 1 to 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. I think that's one of those great understatements in the Bible. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. So in these opening 13 verses of chapter 4, uh, we read about Satan's temptation of Christ. Now, after his baptism in the Jordan River, the Spirit immediately leads him out into the desert to be tempted by Satan. Notice that this is God's plan. He's being prepared for the future as he's taken out by the Spirit to be tempted for 40 days. Now, the mission for which the Spirit had come on Jesus it's not uh, political or social ultimately, although he's got much to say to those categories, but it's spiritual. Indeed, it's cosmic. You know, it would involve conflict with Satan and the powers of darkness, and immediately here Jesus is tested. You know, this is no minor skirmish. This is a full frontal attack, if you like. The father has just affirmed, this is my son whom I'm well pleased with. And immediately Satan goes on the attack and says, okay, I'm going to destroy this son so that he cannot fulfill his plans, that he can't assault the forces of darkness, that he can't usher in his kingdom. And so there are three different temptations, as we know, that Satan places before Jesus. And Jesus, of course, repels each one of them by quoting scripture back at Satan. And Satan is tempting Jesus to act in a way that would supposedly prove his sonship. But what he's really doing is trying to lure him into acting independently of his father. And see, the first temptation questions the father's provision and care. It tempts Jesus to prove his sonship. If you are the son, by taking matters into his own hands... I mean, the devil's effectively saying, look, you know, surely the father doesn't want you to starve out here in the desert. You are the son, aren't you? Well, you could just solve this problem yourself. Why don't you turn that stone into bread? And of course, Jesus replies with Deuteronomy 8.3, arguing that 
Life is about more than food. It's actually about following the Father's will, obeying his word. What about the second temptation? It's far more in his face, as it were. It's this open request that he worship Satan and abandon loyalty to the Father altogether. But I think below that, there's a more subtle temptation that's going on as well. See, Satan's offering him all the power and glory that will follow once he has suffered and has been raised to the right hand of the Father. He will be in command over all things. But he's going to have to go through a lot of rejection and suffering to get to that point. Why not quickly access power? Just bow down to me and you can have everything now, Jesus. Well, Jesus replies with Deuteronomy 6.13, Worship the Lord your God only. Well, what about the final one? Well, in the final temptation, Jesus is taken in a vision-like experience, it seems, up to the high point in the temple. Um, Commentators uh, think this was probably the royal porch that was on the southeastern corner of the temple. Now, that stood really with this massive cliff uh, down into the Kidron Valley, It's said to be something like a 150-metre drop. No one could jump off that ledge and survive. Uh, It was said by some of the ancient writers that went there that people got giddy just even looking and getting close to the edge. And Satan adds this enticement to him as he suggests that he throw himself off and prove the Father's love, that he would just rescue him. And his enticement is, well, isn't that what Scripture says? And he quotes to him Psalm 91. Well, he won't allow you to be injured. He'll send his angels to save you. But rather than demonstrating unnecessarily that God could protect him, Jesus states that he is not called to test the Father. There's no need to do that, as he quotes Deuteronomy 6. What's going on with all of this? I think what we see here again is the new Adam parallel. The comparison to Adam is suggested by the end of the genealogy, as I said before. Son of Adam, son of God. And Christ's testing takes place in the wilderness, very unlike Adam in the idyllic garden. But the cosmic confrontation here um, recalls that earlier encounter. There is a lot on the line here. And huge consequences, bad consequences, followed for humanity in the first Adam's failure. But of course, unlike him, Jesus resists temptation here. He remains obedient to the Father. And implicit in Luke's gospel and in all the other gospels is this notion that Jesus is the first man of a new race. He's the leader of a new humanity, of those who will place their trust in God and follow him. But more than that, Jesus is also the new Israel. You know, he's the representative that succeeds where the whole nation had failed previously. This is supposed to remind us of the Exodus and their failure. Remember, they part the red waters, they're taken to Mount Sinai, they're made God's special people, God speaks from the mountain again, the Ten Commandments are given, they are set aside as the special people of God and immediately they're tested as spies are sent into the promised land and they come back all fearful and say, no, we can't trust God, we're not going to do it. And then for 40 years they wander in the wilderness till that whole generation dies because they had failed to trust God. Well, here Jesus is led out into the wilderness too for 40 days. 
And he's not wandering because he's already failed. He's being tested. And he comes up trumps where the nation did not. Where Israel failed, the son, the true son, succeeds. And perfectly obedient to his father. Well, I'll tell you why all of this is important. This all has a very helpful application and practical outworking for ourselves if we're following Jesus as our king. And see, in the end, what we have as a result is one who can be our great high priest, who can be an advocate on our behalf. This testing is preparation for Jesus. It allows him to be that advocate, that one who understands what we go through. Have a look at Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. It's a really important passage uh, that picks up this theme. Verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, in this passage, notice not only is Jesus our representative in heaven, having died and then risen and been raised to the right hand of the Father, in verse 15, he understands our weaknesses. He is sympathetic. You know, in case the phrase, which seems very exalted in verse 14, who has gone through the heavens, made you think that, well, you know, Jesus is really going to struggle to understand the issues that us mere mortals face. Well, verse 15 addresses that issue and it encourages us because it undermines that false notion that Jesus just can't relate to the problems we face in a hostile world. I think we really need to hear this because if, if you're like me, you'll be prone to think at times that when Jesus was living on earth, he was somehow like Superman. You know, he's Teflon coated. Y- yes, he had taken on flesh, but he was still the son of God. And so surely he didn't really experience all the tough things that we face in this world. But the writer wants to say to us, no, that is wrong. He can completely sympathize with us because he fully participated in our humanity. Now, apart from this direct temptation by Satan here in the wilderness, you know, Jesus had to deal with hunger and thirst and weariness, grief. He watched his friend Lazarus die and others around him. He saw the desertion of his best friends, his disciples. When push came to shove and he was arrested, everyone fled and left him. Throughout his earthly ministry, he saw many disappointments He was tested moment by moment, day by day, until the very last moment. Even when he's hanging on the cross, when he's finally laying down his life that he might save the people that are indeed uh, crucifying him, he is mocked and tested still with people calling out, particularly the religious leaders, save yourself. If you are really the son of God, then you'll come down now and prove it to us. Even the criminals that are being crucified beside him are saying, Save us now and save yourself if you're really the son of God. Sounds like Satan, doesn't it? If you're really the son of God, come down. His suffering wasn't a charade. You know, we can take great comfort from the fact that he can sympathize with all of our struggles. 
However, notice in verse 15 that having faced all the temptations that we can face, he didn't sin. Jesus triumphed over it. And Jesus was the most tempted human ever to walk on this earth. And the reason I say that is because he never gave in. He felt the whole weight of sin, the pressure to give in, but he never once did. We never feel that full weight. We always give in at some moment. It gets too hard and we sin. We give way to the temptation. Christ bore the brunt of that and resisted all pressure. Pressure is a powerful thing. I don't know if you know the story of the first atomic submarine, one of the first in the United States. It was called the USS Thresher. It was built uh, in 1961. And shortly after that, it was uh, tested. On the 10th of April, 1963, uh, they were doing some deep diving tests off the coast of Boston, Massachusetts, there in the North Atlantic. And they were uh, going down each day a little bit deeper. They had another vessel above them in radio contact as they tested out uh, what this new craft could do. It could supposedly go to great depths. And this went on for a couple of days until on the 10th of April, they lost radio contact, or the ship above them, rather, lost radio contact and, of course, immediately worried that something had gone wrong, frantically trying to get in contact, radio them, calling other naval ships to come to that area. But after many hours of frustration and no contact being made, they had to accept that the thresher, which included 129 crew, had been lost. It's one of only two times in naval history that more, more than 100 people have died on a sub. And President John F. Kennedy, who was the then president, asked all of the flags in the U.S. to be at half-mast for several days. Such was the tragedy. You know, they could not get down to the depth of where they think it may have gone to on the bottom with the technology they had in that day. But later in the 1980s, they were able to send down a robotic survey and they discovered that the thresher had gone down so deep and obviously faced some problem and it had simply imploded with the weight of pressure around it. It had broken into thousands and thousands of pieces that had just been scattered along the ocean floor. Now, I put it to you, that temptation can feel like this. You know, it's a, it's a pressure that's upon us that we feel like we're struggling to resist at times, feeling like we're going to cave in, that we'll have to give way. You know, whether that's pride, whether it's envy of others, I find myself always comparing myself with other people and feeling that God is somehow blessing them and I'm jealous of them. Maybe it's my inability at times to hold my tongue where I just have that judgmental, critical spirit and I want to let go of that zinging comment against that person because I feel hurt or something has happened. Maybe it's that selfishness that just pressures in on me where I know I need to be concerned about others, but I really just want to look after number one and I don't want to help that person and I'm not going to give my time to this or that. Whatever it is for you, there are 101 pressures that can come on us, temptations where we want to give way to just sinning and doing what we want. Well, sometimes I think we feel that we're being tested beyond our limits and we'll excuse ourselves and we'll say, look, I had no choice. Do you know why I spoke like that to that person? Do you know the situation I was placed in? 
this is why I reacted like that. That's why I got angry that day. That's why this or that happened, because I was goaded into that point. I was tested beyond my limits. I had no choice. God would say to you tonight, otherwise, that's not true. He's made us a wonderful promise, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. It'll come on the screen. Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. See, as James writes in James chapter 1, when we give way to temptation, it's because we've been enticed and we've chosen to. We've chosen sin. But we've got a wonderful promise here of God's help, of providing a way forward. And this promise has a wonderful application that comes back to that passage in Hebrews 4 that I mentioned earlier. And that's because apart from Christ's stellar example of knowing God's word and being able to use scripture when we're being tempted, we also have this wonderful practical help of prayer. We can come to the Father at any time, 24-7, asking for help, knowing that he will hear our prayer, indeed that we have an advocate at his right hand in Jesus who has gone through all the struggles of this life and stands with us, indeed has laid down his life for us. And that's why we had that wonderful phrase about the access to the Father in prayer, come to the throne of grace. It's all about God's willing reception of our prayers because of Christ's work on our behalf. We're told indeed that we can go to the Father with confidence. We don't go unsure of getting a hearing. God's going to banish us from his presence because we've failed him so. Not at all. We're encouraged to bound in to his throne room, as it were, and to lay everything out before him. In Christ, we have a wonderful advocate. Do you remember that moment when Jesus was arguably most under pressure at the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's feeling the weight of the crucifixion that's just around the corner, and he's crying out to the Father, please, if there's any way Take this cup from me. Now, at such a moment, you would think it would be legitimate for him just to be focused on himself. He's actually arguably more focused on his disciples. He goes back to them three times. And what does he say to them? Pray. Pray why? Pray so that you will not fall into temptation that you will not give way. Indeed, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What an encouragement. See, we started with the question tonight, what is it that qualifies Jesus? Why is Jesus qualified to be our king? How can I entrust my whole life to him? Well, it's because he's affirmed as the one who will rule. The father said, this is the one. Secondly, he comes from the right bloodline. Only one in the line of kings can be the king of Israel, indeed the king of humanity. 
And thirdly, he has been tempted and tested, verified, stamped, okay, more than okay, by the struggles that he faced as he took on Satan in the wilderness. He's one who has been tempted in every way as we are and yet was without sin. You can trust this king. He's qualified to rule your life. And there's no one better to place your life into uh, their hands. We can be sure of his help in all the ups and downs. I don't know what you're facing tonight. You may have had a really rough week. Or you may know some really big things are coming up for you. And you think this is going to be really difficult for me to face. Let me encourage you to read God's word. To pray. To reflect on promises like 1 Corinthians 10.13. God is with you. He'll give you a way forward. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we have one who is eminently qualified to be our King. Indeed, there's no one else that could take his place. And so, Lord, we pray that you might help us if we know him as Lord and Savior of our life to entrust ourselves fully to him, to be encouraged as we face trials, as we face temptation, to know that we have an advocate, one who understands us, one who will only too willingly help us and provide grace in our time of need. Uh, Lord, we pray that you'd comfort us with these wonderful truths, strengthen us to live for you, and to use the wonderful resources that you've granted us. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.